Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, the 1889 murder of Dr. Patrick Henry Cronin. They begin to pull out what they initially thought was the body of a dog, and they realize very quickly that it's the body of a man. And even though there's been considerable sort of deterioration of the body, they very quickly make the assumption that this is the body of of Dr. Cronin. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenis. Okay, so this episode's question comes from Mike. Do you have any films that you especially like that you think fit with the most notorious theme? I I love this question. Okay, so of course I did have to think about this a little bit. Um, Here are my favorite most notorious worthy films top five and before i catch any flack yes i love the godfather films i love goodfellas just as much as the next person uh, tombstone that goes without saying but some of these top five might be obvious too all right so number five i have to go with last of the mohicans um west duty as Magua, gave me nightmares for a week. Highly recommended, although I'm sure you've all seen it before, multiple times like me. So number four, I'm going to say The Duelists. I mean, no words. Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel, of all people playing French officers during the Napoleonic Wars, and they, they keep trying to kill each other in these wild, amazing duels. I mean, what more could you ask for in a movie? (laughs) Number three, I'm going to be controversial here, and I'm going to go with Paper Moon. A A couple of grifters selling Bibles during the Depression. It's sad, it's poignant, it's funny, and it's even a little suspenseful at times. Uh, Great performances. 
especially, I think, from Madeline Kahn. Okay, so number two is The Untouchables. I mean, the history in this movie, I mean, let's face it, it's pretty suspect. Uh, Frank Nitti getting tossed off the top of a building. I don't find humor in death, but it's pretty hysterically funny. (laughs) In all of its uh, glorious ridiculousness, I forgive it all, though, for Robert De Niro's portrayal of Al Capone and the gut-wrenching scene where Sean Connery's character, well, I don't want to spoil it. I can't believe anyone in my audience hasn't seen this yet. But just in case you haven't, all I'll say is don't play an opera record home alone, uh, especially with the door open. Oh, man, the soundtrack is incredible, too. So, number one, without question, Angels with Dirty Faces. I think this is my favorite movie of all time. James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, and uh, Leo Gorsi, <laughs> all in the same film. I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, Cagney is, is in his prime in this movie. His, his puffed-up chest... His uh, crocodile smile, and of course his his nonstop quips. Say your prayers, mugs. All right, that's my top five, and I'm sticking to it. On with the show. I am so excited to have as my guest today Jillian O'Brien. She is a historian, reader in modern Irish history at Liverpool John Moores University. And she is also a historical consultant for museums and heritage centers in Ireland. An author as well, she's here to talk about her 2015 book, Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago. So happy to have you here. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's a real pleasure to get to talk about uh, about this. So this is such a riveting case and incredibly sensational back in the day, I would imagine that there was a massive amount of information to sort through in researching this book. Yeah, there there was. I mean, I came across the story almost accidentally, well, entirely accidentally. I was based at the Newbury Library in Chicago, and I was there for a month. And my plan had been to look at um, Chicago newspapers and see ha- what they had said about things that were happening in Ireland. And I happened to pick upon the year 1889. And as I was going through these stories about this murder that had taken place in Chicago of an Irishman kept sort of hitting the headlines. And I thought, well, this is great. I must read the book that's bound to have been written about it because it's such an amazing story. And so after my month of spend of going through all the newspapers, I realised that nobody had actually written a book about it. And I couldn't understand why, but was obviously delighted that nobody had written a book about it because it, it gave an opportunity for me to come back to Chicago and spend the best part of a year there doing the research. And the research was spread right across everything from trial transcripts to images to looking up dime museums because the the murder was such a sensational crime that it really permeated sort of loads of aspects of society in the city at the time. Your book actually opens in the days 
uh, just after the, the Great Chicago Fire, which we actually did an episode about recently. Uh, a young man named Alexander Sullivan arrives in the city, and he is someone with a checkered past, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really drew me to the story was there are so many characters that, you know, you couldn't really make up or they seem totally implausible until you realise actually they're for real. And Alexander Sullivan is one of those. And he arrives in Chicago after um, spending some time in Detroit and he comes after the Chicago fire and he, a bit like sort of the city, is reinventing himself. Um, he left Chicago. Detroit in disgrace. Um, there had been a suspicious fire at a shoe store he was involved with, and he was about to be charged with arson before he took off. Then he'd gone to Santa Fe, where he'd become a postmaster, and he left there, and $10,000 had gone missing. And then eventually he lands up in Chicago, where he works as a lawyer. And he's really sharply dressed. He always carries a revolver. He is someone who very much has his eye on being a person of influence and power in the city. And over the course of his lifetime, he constantly reinvents himself. And he's a really intriguing character in the story. So he's obviously charismatic. He's very smart. And he can be aggressive against his enemies. And these are all characteristics that help him succeed in Chicago. And eventually, he becomes the leader of this secret society, the Irish Republican Society, called the United Brotherhood, right? Yeah, I mean, he... He is definitely someone who's quick to anger and he really inspires both great loyalty and great hatred. So people either really like him or they really dis- dislike him. He's not in Chicago long before he actually shoots and kills a man. And he says it's in self-defense, so he doesn't serve any time, but he is charged with, with murder. And it, he he's a school inspector is the man that he shoots and kills. And the reason that he killed him is that he... Alexander Sullivan felt that this man called Francis Hanford had offended his wife and he goes out to his house and shoots him in front of of Hanford's wife. So he's a man of action at some point and then he becomes very heavily involved in Irish Republican activity. Um, the United Brotherhood or Clan na Gael as it was more generally known which just means sort of the family of the Gael or the family of the Irish. And Those who don't like him regard him as a professional patriot, that he doesn't really have Ireland's best interests at heart as far as they're concerned, but he's using his membership of this Irish Republican society to essentially come to positions of significant power within Chicago by tapping into the Irish community. Um, And he is remarkably good at that. So by the mid-1880s, just over a decade after he arrives in Chicago, he really is sort of the kingpin in Irish Chicago. Would you tell us more about uh, Clan na Gael, why it was founded and why it, why it was a secret society, what the goals of its members were? Well, I think one thing to know about Irish revolutionary secret societies is that as soon as they're founded, almost the very first thing on their agenda is the split. Um, and Clannagale comes out of a split in an Irish revolutionary organisation called the Fenians. And in the late 
1860s, the Fenian split, and out of that you get this other radical secret society, Clannagail. Now, they are specifically devoted to gaining Irish independence through the use of force. So it's not a constitutional movement. The purpose is to raise money and to train men. And the United States is a very good place to train Irish men or Irish American men in the use of dynamite because it's being used it's easily accessible. It's been used on most of the building sites where, uh, and where the railways are being being developed. So a huge number of these young men have access to and knowledge of how to use explosives. And one of the things that Clonagall was interested in doing was uh, bringing explosives from the United States over to Britain and detonating those in significant places like the House of Commons or London Bridge as a way ultimately to achieve Irish independence. So that was kind of really behind particularly Alexander Sullivan's period in charge because he thought that bringing the fight to to Britain was one way of achieving Irish independence. And Clannagale is really popular um, in Chicago, particularly that's really its stronghold. When many of these Fenians, these radicals who were being persecuted by the British government they were hightailing it to America, right? Yeah, so you get um, sort of coinciding, well, very much with the uh, Chicago Fire, 1871, you have um, a lot of those Fenians who had previously been imprisoned. There is a sort of a general amnesty and lots of them are released um, from prison in Britain. But one of the conditions of their release is that they can't live either in Britain or Ireland. So the vast majority of those end up in the United States. And they really want to to make an impact in terms of they want to continue the fight and they want to get a lot more of the Irish living in the United States to kind of join in that fight. And so they undertake a number of kind of dramatic things like they rescue, they send a ship, a whaling bark from America to Australia, where they uh, organise a sort of fairly dramatic prison escape of other Fenian prisoners. And they eventually bring them back to New York, where they are given an enormous reception. The you know mayor of New York, New York turns up to welcome these, essentially, as far as Britain is concerned, these terrorists. Um, and that creates a huge kind of buzz. And then they get involved in the invention of the submarine and they um, pour huge amounts of money into the invention of the submarine because they think they'll use it to disrupt shipping from uh, transatlantic shipping and that that's one way to kind of target the British economy. Um, so they get involved in all sorts of things, things like that sound, you know, like entirely made up and slightly bonkers. But I guess, you know, the late 19th century is a place where people do very dramatic things and everything in some ways does seem possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Secret societies, I mean, they sound mysterious, strange, but in the late 19th century, many prominent businessmen belonged to secret societies, and and often more than one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the Clannagale and other Irish secret societies, they do borrow from societies like Freemasons. So there are all sorts of, you know, secret uh, signs that you'd make, you know, you'd put your your finger on one side of your nose to acknowledge that you'd met another member of the clan. Um, they had their own cipher 
So they used to write things in code, um, but the code was sort of ridiculous. So they would just pick the next letter. So instead of the letter I, they'd use F. And it was the easiest code in the world. They were sort of playing at being in a secret society in, 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 many, in many cases. They use um, invisible ink, um, but also invisible ink that's really easy to um to see. Um, So there are all sorts of things that makes it look like they're sort of playing at um, being this underground society. And they are, of course, riddled with spies, as most Irish um, secret societies were. And the other thing is that lots and lots of their members weren't really committed to a revolution. They used Clonagail as a almost community group. And it was a way for Irish men across the United States to meet other Irish men women were not members of Clonagale. Um, and it was a way to secure jobs. It was a way to secure housing. So while ostensibly they were all committed to revolution, for most of them, that was sort of theoretical and it, they were never themselves going to actively get involved in it. And to the public, the Irish public especially, they were viewed as kind of a benevolent organization with connections to the Catholic Church, uh, big picnics in the park. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, Chicago, one of the reasons that they are more prominent in Chicago than in somewhere like, say, Boston or uh, New York is because um, the church hierarchy in the Catholic Church were much more open to a, a radical form of Irish republicanism. And whereas some of the other bishops condemned any of those secret societies, because officially the church was opposed to them, but they actually were given quite a lot of leeway. Um, So Alexander Sullivan was very close to a number of senior churchmen, a a man called uh, Father Morris Dorney of St. Gabriel's Parish uh, in Canaryville. He was a very active member um, of Clonagale. So there are all those overlaps um, with kind of the, the church in Chicago. So the organizational structure of Clan Nagale. It was uh, like a pyramid. Yeah, it's very much based on kind of cells. So in theory, you wouldn't know other people sort of outside your own cell. And then at the top of that structure, there was what was known as the triangle. And it was Alexander Sullivan and two other men uh, called Boland and Feely. But they really didn't have any influence. It was Alexander Sullivan's show and they were yes men to him. So whatever he said essentially happened. And Sullivan had grand ambitions for himself, far beyond Clannagale. Uh, he at one point promoted himself as a possible vice presidential candidate. Yeah, he really thought that, you know, there, there was nothing he felt he, he couldn't do. Um, he had an incredible sort of self-confidence uh, and, and ego. And it's interesting, he was married to um, a very accomplished woman who was a journalist and um, a significant journalist at the time. And a number of um, American politicians um, commented that actually if they had been giving out positions in in government, um, they'd have been more likely or would have wanted to... Um, employ his wife rather than himself. And Clan Nagale was made up of people of all classes, doctors, lawyers, laborers, clerks. Yeah. So pretty much at the top, you have a lot of professionals. So you have um, 
Alexander Sullivan is a lawyer. You've got Father Morris Dorney, who is a priest. You've got someone like Dr. Patrick Cronin, who is a medical doctor. So those who are kind of making the decisions tend to be uh, professionals. And then there's a lot of laborers as well. Um, and those who'd worked on sort of the canals and things in Chicago were also members. So you have a big membership down around uh, Bridgeport and, and Canaryville um, who are members of, of Clonagale. So speaking of Dr. Cronin, uh, would you tell us about him, his background, why he went to Chicago? Well, Cronin is very interesting. He is a man who, or as a child, um, a very young child, his family emigrate from Ireland because of the famine. So they move over to the United States and then to Canada in um, the late 1840s. And by the 1880s, he has qualified as a medical doctor. He has moved to Chicago and he moves to Chicago largely because it's the centre of Clonagale. He's a member of Clonagale and he recognises that Chicago is the centre of kind of all activity. And if he wants to be a senior figure, he has to go there. So he goes to Chicago and his first job is in Cook County Hospital. And that job he gets because Alexander Sullivan essentially sorts it out for him. So these men are not at loggerheads when they first meet. In fact, you know, Cronin owes his first position to Alexander Sullivan. He leaves the hospital soon after that and he sets himself up as a sort of general practitioner. So he has his own medical surgery uh, down pretty much in the loop and he also operates um, from his home, which is north of that. It's just on the corner of Clark and Division. So still quite central, but he operates these two surgeries um, and treats an awful lot of Irish or Irish-American patients. And we will be back after these brief messages. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. 
When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Part of how he builds his reputation is by donating medical services to those who are less fortunate in the Irish-American community. And he becomes uh, well-known for his beautiful singing voice. Yep, he sings at any sort of fundraiser or they have when they have the celebratory picnics um, or when there are sort of celebrations of St. Patrick's Day. He's well known for, for getting up and singing a number of kind of traditional Irish songs. And he's also well known for if people can't afford to pay for a doctor, he will um, he would treat them. Now that stands him to very good stead um, at a point when his life was in danger and a man who had been um, brought in or paid to um, attack him doesn't because Cronin had been had treated his mother very well when she had been ill. So um, his generosity um, certainly saved him at least at one point. Yeah. So it was during this time that Cronin was in Chicago that Sullivan starts to implement something called the dynamite policy. Yes. Now, this was a really controversial um, policy. He wanted to wage what he called um, a dynamite war. And this was following on from a, a version of that which had been called skirmishing that had taken place in the 1870s. And his plan was to raise a lot of money and to send these trained men, men who had been trained in the use of dynamite, over to Britain and they were to target kind of high profile places. So they target um, places like Scotland Yard, which is a fairly daring thing to do, uh, is to target the people who are going to be investigating you. They target the House of Parliament, they target London Bridge, they target underground stations, um, they target the offices of the Times newspaper, because the Times was notoriously an anti-Irish paper. Now, they claimed that their intentions were not to injure or kill civilians, but uh, People, you know, innocent people were injured in these events. This was a hugely divisive policy because um, a lot of members of Clonagale, while they weren't opposed to the use of violence, they were thinking of it much more in, you know, targeting what they would regard as legitimate targets, which is sort of the British army, British politicians, police, not people travelling on the London Underground. Um, and the second reason it was controversial is that for the first time in a number of decades, there was constitutional progress being made. And Ireland was getting close to getting some degree of independence. And quite a few of members of Clonagale wanted to see how that played out. 
And they thought that by bringing on a policy of the use of this sort of indiscriminate violence would only harm that. And Cronin was very actively opposed to this dynamite war, which Alexander Sullivan was very much behind. So how did that rift uh, escalate between them? I mean, it's one thing to simply disagree with someone, but it's another thing to become a mortal enemy of that person. I think there were a couple of reasons really for that. Firstly, the dynamite war was a disaster. Almost all of the people who were involved in the bombings were arrested. Uh, Several of them, the ones who tried to blow up London Bridge, succeeded only in blowing themselves up. And so most of these dynamiters were arrested. Now, the reason that they were caught was because they had been infiltrated. So the authorities very often knew what was going on. Now, back in the United States, what happened was there was a big fundraising drive to raise money for the families of the dead and the jailed dynamiters. So a lot of people gave quite a lot of money into this fund to look after the children, to look after the wives of those who were either in jail or had had died. Now, those families did not get that money. The money that was raised went into Alexander Sullivan's bank account and it disappeared. It was never sort of put back into the coffers of Clan Gale or given to those families. And essentially what Cronin did was he accused him of embezzling clan funds. And that was really emotive because there were all these children who'd been left destitute. There were wives who'd been left destitute. And that generated a huge amount of, of attention. And that put the two men pretty much on a path that was going to end possibly in their mutual destruction or one of them would uh, would be destroyed by the other. Yeah, it, it was a serious amount of money, right? It was uh, over $100,000 in 1889 currency. Oh, yeah, it's an enormous amount of money. It's sort of inconceivable that that could just go go missing. Now, Sullivan says he invested it, uh, in inverted commas, on the Chicago Board of Trade and that the, the stocks, you know, just, they, they just, it was, they were, it was lost in a kind of sort of legitimate investment. Um, but there was quite a few who didn't believe that story either. So Sullivan was the subject of an internal investigation in the society, and he was eventually brought up on charges. Yes, though, as was, uh, well, firstly, they bring Cronin up on charges for making what's regarded as false accusations and bringing kind of the clan into disrepute, and he's thrown out of uh, Clan Nagale. But that doesn't stop him. He continues to, to talk to anyone who'll talk to him. He writes pieces that he circulates through all the clan camps, and eventually kind of as a way of trying to bring this all to a head, they agree to kind of investigate Sullivan. And they have this trial, which Cronin is a part of. And eventually, at the end of this trial, Sullivan is kind of vindicated and he's found not guilty. And Cronin in Chicago decides, well, he's not finished, that this is a farce, that it's been a whitewash, and he's going to persist in his campaign against Alexander Sullivan. And he knows it's risky because he writes this really strange kind of document for his friends called Is It a Conspiracy? And 
this is it a conspiracy? Is this fictionalized interview that Cronin does with this imaginary journalist? And in it, he talks about his impending death and says that his death will be something that will be very much investigated into. And this is before anything happens. He writes this document that sort of almost foretells what will happen to him. Interesting. So Cronin is not the only person who's run afoul of Alexander Sullivan, right? Uh, Cronin joins a group of outcasts, outliers, who all have a beef with Sullivan and the rest of the Clan Nagale leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of his biggest allies is a man called John Devoy, who is a really significant figure in the Fenian movement and later Clan Na Gael, um, he had been one of those who had been arrested and had done time and had arrived over after the amnesty of 1871. And he certainly encourages Cronin to continue his campaign. But he isn't able to protect Cronin because he's not based in Chicago. He's based primarily in New York. So Cronin has support, but the support is, not, is mostly not local support. So he is left quite isolated um, in Chicago. So Sullivan has to feel even more powerful after, after being vindicated, right? And he decides that it's Cronin's turn at this point. So suddenly private detectives are sniffing around Cronin, gathering information about him. Yeah, essentially what happens is almost like a smear campaign. They begin to kind of search anything in his background that can be used um, against him. And there's also sort of this campaign of fear and intimidation. So he gets a call out um, one late one evening to a medical emergency. And when he gets there in his carriage, he realizes that it's a vacant, it's a vacant lot. There is no house there. And he doesn't stop. Um, but he's convinced that he'd been lured out to this sort of isolated place and that something bad would have happened to him. And then there's a man sent essentially to beat him up, the man who doesn't because he'd been nice to his, Cronin had been nice to his mother. And there are all sorts of issues. He is convinced, and he's not wrong, that he is under surveillance. In fact, um, he is in his office downtown. Supporters of Sullivan actually rent a built a room in a building directly across from Cronin's office so they can look in and they can see him in his um, medical practice. They don't at that time do anything, but there's very much this case, this thing of trying to frighten and intimidate uh, Cronin. And he's asked to be a witness in a couple of trials, but later comes to realize they were setups, basically. Yeah, absolutely. There is in order that that's this sort of brings him sort of public attention when he's been asked and he realizes essentially that these trials are setups and i suppose it it feeds into this idea that you know sullivan has uh, quite a lot of influence within not just fellow lawyers but also judges and the whole setup and also the police that they are attempting to get um cronin essentially to perjure himself and um to ruin what what is left of his reputation. But Cronin fights back. He starts digging up dirt on Sullivan. Yeah, well, Sullivan, um, there's 
Cronin is born in Ireland and, and Sullivan is not born in Ireland. And there is um, that tension always there between those who are born in Ireland who feel that they have much more of a, I guess, a right to talk about the country than those who were born in the United States. But it's Cronin who first called Sullivan a, a professional patriot. And he really casts aspersions on Sullivan's devotion to actually achieving Irish freedom. He thinks that Sullivan is very cynical about this and really is only interested in in our in Irish affairs because of what that can do for him in America and specifically in Chicago. So Cronin is paranoid. He's constantly worried he's about to be killed. Yep. And he gets, he starts to carry in this, again, isn't that unusual in Chicago of the 1880s. He starts to carry a Smith & Wesson around with him all the time. So on the one hand, he is paranoid. But on the other, he does some things that seem very strange when you look at them, you know, 100 years later or more than 100 years later. So he, in the spring of 1889, a man comes to his surgery and this man runs uh, an ice house up in Lakeview. And you know, running an ice house in the 1880s is a dangerous affair because you're basically chopping off huge chunks of ice using very sharp implements in order then to deliver them to, to people's houses, um, in the you know, primarily in the summer. And he wants to basically employ Cronin on a retainer. And this man called Patrick Sullivan, who's not a relation of Alexander Sullivan, he wants to pay Cronin a certain amount every month and that Cronin will then treat any of his employees who get injured. Sullivan has never had an injured employee. So it seems odd that he's prepared to pay on a monthly basis. It seems odder yet that he would come all the way into Chicago to employ a doctor when he passes, you know, tens of other doctors um, who would be able to get to the ice house much faster if somebody had injured themselves. And yet Cronin doesn't seem to think that this is particularly suspicious and he agrees to sign up as um, the the medical doctor for that ice house. So in one way, he's paranoid and in the other, he does something that retrospectively certainly uh, looks like a very bad idea. And one possible explanation you offer in your book is that he wasn't a rich man, right? Dr. Cronin might really have needed that money, that $50 a month. Yeah, I mean, that is the only sensible, I think, reason. He he did do a lot of free work um, and he wasn't particularly wealthy. And the other reason, I think, is he's actually introduced to Patrick Sullivan by a man he trusted. And so that might also explain why he agreed to to that setup. What were the accusations against Cronin that that led to his expulsion from Clan Nagale? Well, he was accused basically of airing dirty linen in public because being a member of a secret society, you weren't supposed to, you know, make public anything that happened in that secret society. Um, And Cronin was happily telling anyone outside of that secret society uh, about things that were going on and making those allegations very publicly about Alexander Sullivan. Um, so it was it was largely that and it was about bringing this society into dis- disrepute so that his behaviour was regarded as being deeply problematic for a secret society, yeah, which it was. Absolutely. So it was Saturday night, 
about 7.30 in the evening, you write, on May 4th, when Dr. Cronin was last seen alive. Yes. So what happens on that Saturday evening is he was in his surgery in the in his home, so at Clark and Division um, in Chicago, and a man arrived in a panic, said there had been an accident at the ice house and that medical assistance was needed urgently. And he had a horse and carriage waiting for the doctor outside. So Cronin dismissed the other's patients who were waiting to see him, packed his medical bag and got into that carriage and he was never seen alive again, at least not by anybody, you know, that he wanted to see. Obviously, some people saw him alive. So he headed north to Patrick Sullivan's ice house in Lakeview. And that was the last that was uh, seen of him. And so he lived, um, he rented rooms from the Conklins, a married couple that he'd lived with for a number of years and was very friendly with. So when he didn't return, they became anxious about it. They contacted a number of his friends and eventually they contact the police and say, you know, Cronin is missing. We have reasons to suspect that he may have come to harm. The police initially are, are, are quite dismissive over it all, right? Uh, not super eager to solve the mystery of his disappearance. They, they just kind of wave it off as, as Clan Nagale infighting. Yeah, and they don't they don't even kind of respond to it as being a Clan Nagale issue. They say things like, well, you know, he's an unmarried grown man. Uh, if he doesn't come back on a Saturday night, that's fine. You know, that, that he hasn't committed any crime. There's no evidence of any crime. So if he chooses not to return home, that's his own business. So the police are entirely dismissive of this. And so what happens is his friends and the Conklins... Um, they ultimately kind of really, they harness the power of the press and they make it clear that they think Cronin has come to harm. Um, And they also make it clear that they think Alexander Sullivan is behind it. But the police are still busy saying things like, well, maybe he had run off with a married woman. Maybe there had been some sort of, you know, love triangle and that's why he's disappeared. Maybe he's just chosen to leave Chicago. And then there's a suggestion that he'd been killed by Neapolitan brigands, appears as one of the things. There's absolutely no suggestion that there was any connection, but there's all sorts of just bonkers reasons, you know, suggested as to why he might have disappeared. But his friends absolutely maintain that it's to do with this row he was this ongoing dispute between himself and Alexander Sullivan and they are convinced that he has not voluntarily left Chicago and they're even more convinced that he's actually dead. And to make matters even more mysterious, hours after his disappearance, a trunk is discovered. Yes, so a trunk is discovered in a ditch and in that trunk there are bits of uh, material and there looks like there's blood and there also looks like there's hair attached to the inside of the tr- of the of this trunk and the police are also entirely dismissive of that it's sort of like well you know what's that got to do with anything to do with Cronin there's no body there's no obvious connection and the main policeman involved in this is a man called Daniel Cochran 
who makes a number of sort of statements to uh, the press um, about how really they're not that concerned, that they have made some efforts to locate him, but they really don't think anything bad has happened to him. And eventually, sort of, you know, 10 days after he's disappeared, um, Coughlin turns up dressed in his full sort of regimental uniform before the assembled press and says, we give up. We're not looking for Cronin. We don't think there's anything to find. And look, this is the end of that story. So move on. There are other stories you can cover. Um, and he tries to kind of you know, put a full stop to the growing interest from the press um, about Cronin's disappearance. So it's, a, it's about two and a half weeks, correct? Uh, when sewer workers stumble on a gruesome site. Yeah, it's it's um he disappears on the 4th and his body I think is found on the 22nd of May. And there is uh, a report of kind of a blocked drain and so uh, a number of men are sent out to try and you know clear the blockage and so they pull up one of the um essentially kind of sewer lids and they look down and they can see a blockage and they think that what they see is the body of a dog. And so they begin to pull out what they initially thought was the body of a dog and they realise very quickly that it's the body of a man. And even though there's been considerable sort of deterioration of the body, they very quickly make the assumption that this is the body of, of Dr. Cronin, who when they pull him out of the sewer, he is virtually naked and all really he's wearing is his holy medal around his neck. And uh, that leads people very quickly to think that he had to have been murdered by Catholics because they would have been afraid to pull off like a holy medal around some sex. They weren't afraid to kill someone, but that they wouldn't remove the holy medal around them. So once the body is taken from the sewer and then identified as being Cronin, well, you can imagine sort of the media storm that ensues after that. And we will return momentarily after a quick break. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back again. How was he identified, and what was determined to be the cause of his death? Um, he was identified by the Conklins that he lived with. So they were brought uh, to see him in the morgue and they identified um, his, his body. And he was killed by um, 
a blow, blows to the head and then there were a number of other kind of injuries to his body so he was clearly beaten um and it was thought that he that what had killed him was the blow a blow to the head by an ice pick which was probably actually not what what was used it was probably a chisel but very quickly people think it's an ice pick and that's really because they assume that he'd been killed when he went to the ice house that was um, Patrick Sullivan's residence and also business premises. And it, it didn't appear that there were any defensive wounds on his body, right? No, no. So it appears that whenever he went into wherever the carriage took him, that he was attacked from behind um, and that he didn't offer um, any kind of resistance. So how did the press and the public react to the discovery of his body? Well, the press had an absolute field day. I mean, this was not just news in Chicago. This was news right across the United States. It was news in Canada, where Cronin's family, a lot of them lived. It was news basically right across the English-speaking world. And it wasn't just sort of, you know, a small paragraph. This was front-page news and front-page news for weeks and months. So you have all sorts of lurid headlines. You have um, papers like the National Police Gazette, uh, which, you know, has pages and pages of kind of cartoons about the murder. It's on the front page of magazines like Punch and Judge. um, And it generates an enormous amount of, of attention and discussion. And um, there's all sorts of debates about how this is a dreadful development, not just because it's a shocking murder, but it also, people assume it's a Clannagale murder and that it's now the Irish turning on the Irish and whatever about them blowing up places you know, outside of the United States. Well, this is hugely problematic if they're going to start killing people in the United States. So there's a huge debate about immigration. There's a huge debate about sort of law and order. And just the sheer brutality of the murder, because eventually the police quite quickly arrest Patrick Sullivan, because that was where Cronin had gone to first. And a few days later, they discover where he was actually murdered. And it was in a cottage beside Patrick Sullivan's house that had been rented from a Swedish family by another Irishman um, who'd said he was moving to Chicago for work. And when they realize that he had disappeared, they go into the house that they own and they find blood everywhere and broken furniture and clearly signs that something awful had happened. So they now have, you know, a murder site, which obviously gets an enormous amount of attention. And the the poor Swedish family whose house it was reckoned they'd never be able to rent it out again because who would want to rent that house? How wrong they were. Uh, They open it up as a tourist attraction and thousands of people go to see the site where Cronin was kind of beaten to death and they could take souvenirs home of a little shard of bloodied wood to kind of go, "I, I went to a murder site. So they actually made an enormous amount of money out of that cottage uh, at one point, which, you know, is, is sort of very macabre, but also very late 19th century as a sort of thing for people to do. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm never surprised to hear that, but but I'm always surprised to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the meantime, 
there is an absolutely massive funeral for Dr. Cronin. Yep, it's the biggest funeral to take place. Well, not that the uh, or funeral cortege to pass through the city since Lincoln's funeral had come through the city after his assassination. Like thousands of people uh, file past his closed casket. Thousands of people line Michigan Avenue in order to see the funeral procession go up to Holy Name Cathedral where the mass, his funeral mass takes place. Several trainloads of people get uh, on board and go out to Calvary Cemetery north of, of Chicago on your, your way to, to Evanston. Um, it's an absolutely massive affair. And I think just to put that in context, before Cronin disappeared, he was only known within his own community. You know, he's not a big celebrity. He wasn't somebody that was known, you know, outside of that kind of relatively small Irish-American community. And thousands and thousands of people. I mean, it is phenomenal. Bands play in the funeral procession. It takes, you know, about 15 minutes for the funeral procession just to go past one point. Um, It is a really remarkable thing. Now, partly that is because people wanted to say, I was there. And that's partly because there had been a big twist in the story. And the major twist in the story that really captivated people was, if if you remember the Dan Coughlin, the police officer who dressed up in his full regimentals and called in the, the, the press and said, you know, we're not looking for Cronin. This is all totally unnecessary. He ends up arrested and charged with Cronin's murder. So the chief policeman in charge of looking for the missing man is also one of the first to be charged with his murder. And, you know, that really grips the the press and, and the public. And how was he connected to the murder? Well, it became very quickly apparent uh, that he was a member of Clonagale. Not only was he a member of Clonagale, but he was a member of the same sort of unit that Alexander Sullivan was a member of. So he was very close to Alexander Sullivan. He was connected to Patrick Sullivan, who owned the Ice House. And he was also identified as being uh, involved in the hiring of the horse and carriage, uh, which was hired from just beside the police station where he was based. So there was all sorts of evidence to tie him to the murder, along with several other men who were later accused and put on trial. Now, Alexander Sullivan was arrested and was questioned but he was never charged with Cronin's murder. So even though sort of most people believed Sullivan to have been involved, if not actively involved, certainly behind it, but he's actually never charged with the murder. But I think to give, I suppose, some sense of just how pervasive this story was in Chicago, whether that was people visiting the Carlton Cottage to get their little shards of wood, or whether it was going to see the dime museums where they had waxworks of the dead man and the men who were being charged, or all of the newspapers. They had to interview over a thousand potential jurors for the trial before they could get 12 that didn't already have an opinion. And that was one of the longest ever kind of jury picking events that had taken place. At the time, it was the longest in in, uh, US 
judicial history because so many people, you couldn't find people who didn't have an opinion. And to go to, through a thousand to get 12 to sit as jury members is really remarkable. What was the, the difference between how Chicagoans of Irish descent viewed the murder, the case, and non-Irish Chicagoans? Non-Irish Chicagoans were generally on the side of Cronin, and they pointed to Dan Coughlin, the policeman being arrested, and the association with Alexander Sullivan, the lawyer, as evidence of a very malign influence of the Irish in um, you know, in civic life and that how the Irish were using United States to kind of better themselves and better and get involved in kind of Irish politics, which they didn't want them to do. And there was that sort of element of generally anti-Irishness that if they were, you know, look at the violence that had ensued and the awfulness of the murder. And Cronin wasn't exempt from that because he had been also a member of a society that had pledged itself to the use of violence. But the vast majority of the public thought that uh, the men accused were guilty. And even though Alexander Sullivan hadn't actually been charged, the court of public opinion certainly um, had found him guilty too. So in terms of, of trial strategy, what was the prosecution's case? What was the defense's case? Well, the... Prosecution essentially pointed to all of the connections uh, between the the men who'd been accused, even though one of them had certainly nothing to do with it, who happened to look a bit like another man that probably should have been arrested. But all of the others were very closely associated with Alexander Sullivan. They could prove all of their connections. They could prove, um, at least they argued that they could prove that they had been hostile to Cronin. And that this sort of evidence of a conspiracy, they were able, they felt, to make a very clear case for. The defence was that they had absolutely nothing to do with it um, and that there was no way of proving that 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 conspiracy. Now, certainly the public felt that the conspiracy was very clear. And, you know, the public, there were, you you would queue for hours to try and get in. The, The public galleries were absolutely rammed. I think about 200 people were able to get into the public galleries every day, but thousands queued outside. Now, there was an awful lot of young women who attended, and that was partly because one of the lawyers, a man called Dan Donovan, was regarded as being incredibly attractive. So you've all these women, and they turned up carrying smelling salts, such was their excitement. <laughs> so there's all sort of these great little vignettes about um, the story where you get like, you know, it's all very serious and it's a really horrible, awful murder. And then you've got these stories of ladies queuing up just to see one of the handsome lawyers. So the whole thing, it's like one of those, I guess, you know, it's like one of those big celebrity trials that you see today um, where it's more than just what happened. It becomes people wanting to be a part of of it in in some way or another. Uh, It's really kind of remarkable. And I guess the timing is, is also significant because it's around that time that newspapers are beginning to become kind of more interested in sensationalism. And this is an perfect opportunity and they benefit from you know all sorts of great characters not necessarily likable people but one of the spies who had infiltrated and whose story gets told around the same time is a man called Henri Le Caron 
who had been, again, a very good friend of Alexander Sullivan's and an absolute sworn enemy of Cronin. And he was this Frenchman who was had his little French moustache, his little twirlies moustache. He spoke with quite a, a strong French accent until he didn't. Because in the middle of all this, he ends up in London at a different trial where he takes the stand as a witness and he says, oh, I'm actually not French at all. I'm English. And for 25 years, I've been pretending to be French while infiltrating Irish Republican organisations. And he spills the beans over in London about all of these connections with Alexander Sullivan and Cronin. And the press go wild for this Frenchman who isn't a Frenchman. So you've got all of these just characters that if you made them up in a fictional book, you'd say, that's just too much. Nobody'd believe that. It's not possible. But it was all possible and it was all true. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. The worldwide ramifications that this murder had. It had a ripple effect straight across the Atlantic yeah, I mean, it, within Irish America, it, it causes a, a big split that lasts for years and it really weakens um, Irish Republicans in the United States for like a generation. They, ca- they can't raise uh, the money that they used to raise to send back to Ireland to continue sort of the fight for Irish freedom. It makes the, the United States begins to sit up and look in a way it hadn't before about, you know, they're turning a blind eye to these sort of societies. They're not happy to do that anymore. So that has, there are repercussions there. Within Chicago, the whole police system is shaken up and officers are moved around. About at least 10 police officers are sacked as a result of the case. There are inquiries into jury, there was attempts to bribe the jury during the the murder trial, um, and so new systems were put in place there. There were all sorts of sort of ramifications from a kind of very local level to a much bigger, uh, you know, kind of transatlantic impact. So it wasn't ever just the case of kind of one man uh, and and one murder. Um, it the repercussions are enormous you know, for loads of individuals and then um, much more broadly as well. And you do point out in your book that a lot of the officers connected to this case had been involved in the Haymarket riot three years earlier in Chicago. Yes, uh, Michael Schack particularly, who had come to prominence um, at Haymarket, he... um, has a significant role to play in the investigation to the Cronin murder, at least at an early stage. But um, he is deemed to, um, in some ways, I guess he tries to make it all about him and there are all sorts of problems about that. And he's quite close to Daniel Coughlin and he ends up being dismissed and removed. So he, for the police, had been a very significant figure with Haymarket, but his career is essentially scuppered by the, um, his acti- activities during the Cronin kind of investigation and, and subsequently the trial. I've got to say, I'm surprised that there is not more written about Alexander Sullivan. He, he was such a villainous character. Well, one of the reasons is he doesn't leave a huge amount of paper trail behind him. So we don't conveniently have a nice Sullivan archive to, to dig into. But he's never charged, but he does disappear off the scene for about six years. He's persona non grata uh, in the aftermath of uh, 
the the murder. And he is at one point about a decade after the murder, he is arrested and he's charged with jury bribing. And he is found guilty of that. And the other thing, he may or may not have been responsible directly for Cronin's death, but he Cronin was certainly killed because of Alexander Sullivan. The people who murdered Sullivan, or sorry, murdered Cronin, were doing so because they knew or they felt it would help Alexander Sullivan. And one piece of, I think, evidence to show that he was certainly, if not directly behind it, he certainly supported it, is he essentially funds the defence. So that the men who were charged with the murder, Sullivan borrows a lot of money before the trial. He remortgages his house. He does all sorts of things. And there's no reason in the world why he would have done that, except that he pays the lawyer's fees, which doesn't make him necessarily guilty of the murder, but he's you can see which side he's certainly on as, as a result of that. So you know, he doesn't take the fall, at least not in terms of going to jail, but his, his reputation is, uh, is certainly ruined. But, you know, others do are actually found guilty of the murder of Cronin. And they're sentenced to years and years in prison, right? Yes. So what happened was that three of them, Patrick Sullivan, the ice house man, and Daniel Coughlin, the the policeman and a man called uh, Martin Burke, who was the man who'd rented the cottage. They're all found guilty of murder and they are sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the reaction by the public and the press is that they think that that sentence is not harsh enough. They had fully anticipated that they would be given the death sentence. Now, it would, you know, the history of, uh, passing the death sentence in Illinois and in Chicago would suggest that that was never really a likelihood. But popular opinion certainly was that those three men should have been executed. So they go off to jail and they are eventually released. Um, in 1893, there was a new trial of the defendants, but only Coughlin is released because the other two who had been sentenced to life imprisonment have already died in prison of TB. And what happens when Coughlin, who's the police officer, he comes out and he opens up uh, he, he opens up a bar in Chicago. Then, I mean, his life is, is entirely bonkers in the aftermath. He opens up this bar. It's a place where a lot of American Irish go to drink. He is eventually arrested and charged with jury bribing because of his connections. And he uh, goes on the run and he ends up dying of TB on a banana plantation in Honduras, where he's living under an assumed name. Um, so it's a sort of remarkable end to a pretty remarkable story of Coughlin's sort of association with the the Cronin murder. Yeah, yeah, that, that's quite an ending. It's quite a postscript for him. <laughs> So after this all went down, did it damage Clan Nagale beyond repair? How long did the organization last? Well, some would say it still sort of exists, though it doesn't really exist in any uh, significant way. But it does, they, 
it does sort of reunite itself in the early years of the 20th century. And then it begins to emerge with a, with a number of, of other groups uh, into kind of the IRB and ultimately kind of things like the IRA. So it, it gets... Um, it changes names, but essentially, you know, the secret Irish Revolutionary Society remains active, and a lot of those would come from the background of being members um, of Clan Nagale. So it sort of moves on, but it never has the power or the influence that it had in that sort of mid 1880s when kind of Sullivan and Cronin were were at loggerheads, and you know it dominates that whole year from as soon as Cronin goes missing. And the trial ends on, I think the verdict is the 16th of December. Every single day, it's a headline in the newspapers, which is, I think, in so, you know, is remarkable. And, and not a surprise then that Clannagale sort of, because it's Clannagale are forced really from the shadows into the limelight. And if you're a secret society, that's never what you want to happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering about that. I mean, this must have been just excruciating just, just complete panic for members of this organization to have their secret business exposed to the world. Yeah, yeah, it does them. It does them no, no good um, at all. And some of those who you know, would not have been supporters of Sullivan, they did criticize uh, Cronin and his um, supporters for for doing that because he had certainly brought some attention, though obviously his death uh, brought a lot more attention. So if you've got a member of a secret society who is getting tens of thousands of people to attend their funeral, then you know you know it's no longer a secret. And, and that was the interesting thing. So um, when he was buried in Calvary Cemetery, after he was found, there was a plan. He was buried in a temporary plot and $5,000 was raised in the next year in order to build a kind of big memorial to him. So there was a plan to build uh, this big sort of monolith, which was going to have, you know, a a bronze bust of Cronin, and it was going to be 50 foot high, and it was going to be kind of a big kind of memorial to the fact that Cronin had been murdered and they raise $5,000 and they go the year after on his first anniversary to move him from the temporary plot into his new where he's going to be buried for like permanently and a band goes and there's hundreds of people and there's a mass said and it's a big event and when I was in Chicago I went up to the cemetery a number of times and wandered around it and it's you know it's a big cemetery but it's not enormous and couldn't find, couldn't find the this fifty foot high monolith, which you would imagine be quite easy to spot. Went three times. Eventually, contacted someone in the cemetery and said, "Please, can you tell me how am I so blind that I cannot see this?" And he brought me over to this part of the cemetery, and he said, "Oh, that's what you're looking for." And I had to look down and pull grass away, and there's this tiny little granite plaque that just says P.H. Cronin. So his big memorial was never made. So somebody somewhere disappeared with that $5,000 that had been raised. So Cronin, whose campaign had begun trying to expose the loss of $100,000, it's just sort of in some ways ironic that he doesn't get his memorial because somebody went off with the $5,000 that was raised to uh, put it in place. And it's, it's, it's such a shame that, that more people don't know about this. It was a significant murder. I mean, 
We cover murders all the time on the show. But this case, again, you know, it had such implications for such an enormous number of people. And here his grave is just reduced to, like you said, an overgrown patch of grass, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the repercussions, sort of the the ripple effect of Cronin's murder, you know, is really significant. Um, And that... I was really, really surprised um, that nobody had written. You know, a number of books came out who were essentially written by journalists who'd covered the the story, came out, you know, in the years, a couple of years after this had all happened. But there had been no sort of big story about it. And I think partly it was because in order to kind of write it, you had to know about the Irish history part of it and also the American history part of it. And that uh, I was in a lucky position in that the Irish history stuff, I kind of knew the context of that and then got to spend quite a lot of time in Chicago. And, you know, any excuse to go to Chicago is is a good one for me. So I was very happy to sort of immerse myself in the history of Chicago and and the Irish in Chicago um, at the time. And just, uh, it was really interesting because just as I'd finished the book, I think the manuscript had gone off and I was wondering, you know, were there any kind of relatives of Cronin or, you know, did, you know, did, did the, was there a family who didn't know anything or more importantly for me, did they happen to have a big stash of documents in an attic somewhere that they didn't know what to do with? So, you know, I spent an hour or two Googling his, you know, his siblings because he was not married and didn't have children. And I eventually found a name of uh, someone called James Cronin, who lived in Chicago. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder is that person, could they possibly be uh, related to Cronin? So I sent an email saying, just wondering, did you ever hear this story or anything um, about it? And I got a response saying, yes, I think I am of that family. I don't really know very much about it, but my great aunt used to talk about her uncle who was, was Dr. Cronin. And uh, what I found really interesting was that Cronin had left Ireland with his family in 1847 at the height of the famine. And they were not a well, well-to-do family, um, even though he becomes a medical doctor. But the man that I was corresponding with was a man called John, James J. Cronin, who had won the, new, or the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1980 and had, was a professor at the University of Chicago. So he turned out to be the closest living relative um, to the murder victim, and he knew nothing of the story. Um, so we met up when I was in Chicago for the launch of the book, so it was a sort of a nice sort of end to sort of rounding that circle. Yes. Well, all right. Uh, this has been fun. So for people interested in finding out more about you, getting more information about you, I know you have a blog, right? Is that the best place to direct listeners? To? Yeah, I think the, that, uh, what is it, julianobrien.net site is has all like has my contact details um and you know stuff about that book and and other kind of projects that i'm doing and other books that i've written so yeah i guess that's probably the best the best place to go well thank you so much for spending some time with us on this case it's, it's so interesting no it was, it's it's my pleasure uh, I, I very much enjoyed it Again, I have been speaking to Gillian O'Brien. Her book is called Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago. 
This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.